the day of the Lord's sacrifice is what I've titled the message here. And uh, we have our opening slide there, which gives us a theme, the coming day of the Lord. And the outline, we're in that first section there, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, warning to Judah of God's coming judgment. Well, Zephaniah ministered in the days of King Josiah of Judah, shortly before the time of the Babylonian captivity. And in short, he warned of coming judgment, uh, the coming day of the Lord judgment. And ultimately, this would be followed by a time of restoration, which he gets to at the end of the book. We noted last time that the day of the Lord theme is a prominent theme in the prophets, and is is also a layered theme, having a near application and yet also a distant application. Now, it had application for the time of Zephaniah, and it has application for us today. So the day of the Lord is a broad theme. The day of the Lord denotes God's direct intervention. I mean, it's got the word Lord in it. And the day of the Lord makes the Lord prominent in terms of his overt intervention in human affairs that puts his lordship on display front and center. Now, um, the day of the Lord theme is presented in Zephaniah in the form of three pictures or portrayals. And we might uh, summarize it this way. Uh, We see this here, chapter 1, these portrayals. Portrayal of a universal flood that destroys everything, just sweeps everything away, destroys everything ultimately. And we saw that in verses 2 and 3. Tonight we're going to look at it being portrayed as a great sacrifice. And then uh, next time, uh, portrayal of a great battle. So we have three pictures or portrayals of the day of the Lord in chapter 1. Let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. Now, in view of the coming day of the Lord, the people are told to be quiet in the presence of Of the Lord God. It's an interesting thing. I mean, everybody's stirring out here, making noise and doing their thing. And and he says, be quiet. Be silent in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Lord God here is Adonai Yahweh. Adonai Lord. uh, Yahweh. uh, Meaning Lord Yahweh or, or Master Yahweh. Or we could spell it out or the sovereign covenant God of Israel who doesn't change. The idea is to be silent before God in the face of his overwhelming coming intervention of judgment. It's so awesomely terrifying that it calls for sobered silence. There is a place just to be still and know that he is God. And this is truly the place for the use of the word awesome. We see this emphasis repeatedly in the scriptures. For example, Psalm 46, 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Habakkuk 2, 20, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent, or keep silence before him. And Zechariah 2, 13, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. To be silent means to hush, to be quiet. In the book of Revelation, when the seventh seal is opened, there is silence in heaven for about a half hour. We might call this a dramatic pause. 
It's as if the judgment of God is so overwhelming that there is nothing to say or do but just sit in awe of the aspect of its coming. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Such impending judgment ought to evoke fear and silence. No more calling on Baal. No more invoking the stars. No more swearing by Molech. For now Yahweh, the only God, would act. The appropriate response to guilt before God, by the way, is silence. Humanity has no defense for its sinfulness. And God is totally justified in severe judgment. We see in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. We tend to want to defend ourselves, but the law shows we're all guilty. And if we get the point, our mouth is stopped. God is in the mouth-stopping business. People talk big, but when he arises to judge the world, it's going to be another story. God in his power and glory will shut the world up, as it were. And it takes a lot to shut the old world up. There are a bunch of yappers out here, right? In view here may be really the sense of a call to repentance. To be silent before God assumes a humbled position, humbled down position, reflective of a repentant heart. I'm no longer, you know, spouting whatever. I'm just humbled down before God. This is the, really the proper position to assume in view of the coming divine intervention of judgment. The day of the Lord is the main theme of the book. Verse 7 is the first use of 19 references to the day of the Lord in the book. Also spoken of as the day, that day, a day, or similar type phrases. Nelson's study Bible, the day of the Lord, describes a period of unusual activity on the part of God in the affairs of his people. Yeah, unusual activity in terms of intervention. The day of the Lord is when God directly interjects, as I say, his lordship into the affairs of humanity in a direct and overt way, especially in relationship to his covenant people, Israel. This is the day of the Lord. Really, this is the day of Yahweh. And Yahweh is God's sacred covenant name. That name that is identified with Israel as their faithful, eternal, covenant-keeping God. <clears throat> it is called the day of the Lord. Uh, as I say, Lord is Yahweh, the covenant name of Israel's God. So this day really puts the God of Israel, their covenant God, on display front and center. At the end of the day, the God of Israel has revealed himself through Israel. All the, the scriptures we have, really in conjunction with Israel. God revealed himself in the Exodus, most prominently in the Old Testament. And he did that in conjunction with his people, Israel. Uh, he revealed the Messiah. He did that through Israel. The salvation is of the Jews. The coming day of the Lord, how's God going to really reveal? He's going to do it in conjunction with Israel. The two witnesses, they're from Israel. I mean, we see this. God's plan is to reveal himself in conjunction with Israel. He is the covenant God of Israel. We see it with Gog and Magog. As God is going to reveal himself on the stage of the world. 
in relationship to his people Israel. So this puts the God of Israel, their covenant God, on display front and center. In the Bible, this intervening theme of the day of the Lord has layers of application. There is a near partial application and a distant complete application. And there are three points of emphasis in particular. As you study the the whole counsel of God concerning this day of the Lord theme, there's really these three layers of emphasis related to specific uh, times of intervention related to judgment, what we call the day of the Lord. And so note these layers of the day of the Lord judgment. Number one, judgment in reference to the Babylonian captivity. That's really what we're talking about here in Zephaniah. But there's also another layer that is brought out as we proceed in the book. Uh, Judgment in reference to the second coming. And then number three, judgment in reference to dissolving of the present heavens and earth at the close of the millennial reign of Christ. And if you're looking for a verse that kind of ties it all together, it would be 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. I call this uh, the bookends to the day of the Lord theme. In conjunction with where Peter was at, uh, from where Peter is writing. Uh, you see, the aspect of the day of the Lord judgment in reference to the Babylonian captivity had already taken place when Peter's writing, Right? It's already took place in the Old Testament. So as Peter's looking at this, everything's looking forward in terms of those aspects of the day of the Lord that are yet to be fulfilled. So we are uh, talking here about the uh, other two prongs of the day of the Lord judgment theme in 2 Peter 3.10, what I call the bookends. And here is what 2 Peter 3.10 says. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's the beginning of the tribulation period, which begins the day of the Lord. And then he says, runs to the end of the story, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Well, that happens at the conclusion of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. That's why I say we've got large bookends. The beginning of the tribulation period, the conclusion of the millennial reign of Christ. These are the great bookends to what is called the day of the Lord. So, uh, notice what we're talking about here. After the rapture of the church, you know, this time of judgment will come upon the world as a thief in the night. That's the beginning of the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord judgment. Tribulation period. But then we go on here. Uh, You've also got a light phase to the day of the Lord. The night or the dark phase, the light phase, the the kingdom glory years. And then at the end of that millennium, we all have uh, another dark phase here. As Satan is again released from his prison. He's been in prison for a thousand years and he goes out to deceive the nations. And those who follow him are as the sand of the sea. And they go up against Jerusalem. Big mistake. I mean, of all the cities to decide to try to deal with, that's not the right one. Fire comes down out of heaven, destroy that, that concludes the whole day of the Lord. That's the last great intervention of the Lord in the history of the world. That's it. So we have these great interventions. Comes as a thief in the night, closes with this. Uh, everything, you know, comes to a close here in a climactic way at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. In terms of the day of the Lord, uh, 
it's really uh, involves over a thousand year period of time, thousand seven years basically. Uh, we have Daniel's 70th week, what we commonly call the tribulation period, which relates to night. And again, this kind of corresponds to a Jewish day. Uh, when did the Jewish day begin? Evening, right? Evening. Ba- basically, darkness setting in. And when did it uh, conclude? Yeah, the next evening. So it starts, starts in darkness, basically, and ends in darkness. That's kind of what we have. It begins with night, and then you have, you know, the day related to the kingdom, the bright spot. And then again, at the end of that thousand years, you've got the closing darkness as, uh, once again, you have that final rebellion. So it kind of follows. It's kind of like a Jewish day. Uh, a lot of commentators uh, note this. But here in view tonight in our study in Zephaniah chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 13, is the near partial day of the Lord intervention in reference to the Babylonian captivity, which is kind of a a forerunner to these ultimate climactic day of the Lord themes that are brought out by Peter. Well, this was a very unique time of divine intervention and judgment on God's people. They were totally, at this point in their history, defying God's lordship. And so he intervened to show them how wrong they were. But he did give them ample warning as seen in the prophets. Now the coming day of the Lord's judgment was at hand. In fact, if indeed Zephaniah wrote just prior to 622 BC, which we suspect that he did, then this judgment, this day of the Lord's judgment related to the Babylonian captivity fell on them About 20 years later, as seen in the three sieges of Jerusalem by Babylon, taking place in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. The point is, judgment was on the way. The day of the Lord's judgment was at hand. And it is described here, in verse 7, as a sacrifice prepared by Yahweh. You see, normally, God's people would bring Him sacrifices to worship Him. But here God is preparing the sacrifice, and this sacrifice is shown to be his own people, Judah. It is a sacrifice of judgment. And the guests God has invited are the Babylonians, who will serve as his divine instruments of judgment. And he continues, verse 8, And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and all the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. Now, the day of the Lord intervention in view involves punishment. Punishment for the Jews, for their rebellious and idolatrous ways. The princess here refers to uh, the king's royal officials, and his sons are also mentioned. Uh, Mention is made of their being clothed with foreign apparel. We say, well, boy, that's a problem. They were buying clothing from China. That was the problem. Just kidding. Foreign apparel which would indicate they were embracing foreign values and practices. Now, you understand, under the law, clothing was kind of a big deal. Uh, God's people under the law were to be a separated people, even including the clothing they wore, how they dressed. Uh, They were commanded, for example, to wear tassels on their garments, which served as a reminder that they were to be a holy people to the Lord their God. Numbers 15. But evidently, the king's officials 
and his children were a little more enamored with uh, worldly foreign clothing, which they probably considered kind of cool to be wearing this foreign stuff. It was a little more cool than, you know, the old stuffy ways of dressing commanded by the Lord. David Levy says adopting such outward dress meant that the leaders had assumed the customs, habits, and manners of their godless neighbors, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. They took on the look of worldly materialism. And the sons of Josiah proved to be a disaster. It's true. They did not follow the godly ways of King Josiah. Uh, Son Jehoiahaz reigned three months and was taken captive to Egypt. Jehoiakim was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, and his son Jehoiachin was taken captive to Babylon, and then yet another son, Zedekiah, was blinded and also taken captive to Babylon. So these sons were all wicked, and everyone was punished in this day of the Lord judgment exactly as prophesied by Zephaniah. Verse 9, in the same day I will punish, again that punishing theme comes out, in the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Now God said he would also punish those who leap over the threshold. Well, what does that mean? Good question. A couple of ideas. Uh, But uh, since the leaders had a tendency to imitate foreign customs... And the the threshold reference here may well tie to the superstitious practice the Philistines had in reference to their god, Dagon, as seen in 1 Samuel chapter 5. They may have picked up that superstition and and were practicing it. Some think it just seems that that these people are are those who are like robbers jumping over the threshold and coming into the house and, and, uh, you know, with violence... Uh, robbing the place and so forth. I tend to think more we're talking about this superstitious practice related to the Philistines. And where there is no fear of God, only superstitious religion, the people know nothing of loyalty and faithfulness. Instead of what defines them is violence and deceit. By the way, look at our own society. The further we get away from God, the more violent and treacherous our society becomes. Only recently have we had to start guarding the church every time we meet. In fact, somebody's out there guarding us right now. Uh, you know, isn't that kind of interesting? I mean, what a time in history. I've never been that way before, not, not in our churches. Uh, I heard on the news this week that in some of our large cities, it's more dangerous statistically to walk around than it, it was to serve as a soldier in Afghanistan in the heat of the conflict. Statistically, that's what they were saying. I don't have any proof for that, but that's just what I heard. Lots of people have all kinds of pagan superstitions, but they have no fear of God, and it shows in their lifestyle. You know, your, your re- attitude towards God is reflected in how you treat people. And these people who are leaping over the threshold, which I take to probably be this superstitious activity, they fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. These are not good people to have around. Verse 10, And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Now the fish gate was located on the north side, close to where the fish market was located. And it was through this gate that Nebuchadnezzar, in the Babylonian invasion, is thought to have entered the city. 
So just uh, FYI, I don't know if you can see that or not. Uh, but anyway, here's the fish gate way up here to the north. It's the main gate. And uh, we're talking about the other quarters then. And then the, the whole entire city is, is surrounded by, by hills here. The second quarter was uh, northwest of the temple where the upper class tended to live. Uh, and the area of the hills perhaps refers, as I say, to the entire surrounding area as Jerusalem is surrounded by hills. There would be a lot of things come crashing down in this whole area. The whole of Jerusalem and the whole surrounding area would experience the judgment of God that brings screams, howling, and loud crying. There is a reason the book of Lamentations is called Lamentations. Uh, the day of the Lord's judgment involved mournful crying and wailing, as it says here. And, and this experience was no respecter of persons, affecting all the sectors of Jewish society. Verse 11 Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. The word Maktesh means mortar, came to represent the business district of the merchants. This perhaps refers to the hollow-like area commonly known as the depression of the Tyrophone Valley, also called the, the Central Valley that runs through the center of Jerusalem. Uh, so here again, the, the main central district here. The central valley where the merchants tended to do their thing, right in the center, uh, more the center, of, at least where the central valley was uh, in the city here. Verse 12, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men, there's punish again, third time, punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, got a heart problem, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Well, if God's not doing good and he's not doing evil, what's he doing? Nothing. Right? So they're very settled in their complacency. We're not concerned about God. We're not concerned about God acting at all. And what is pictured here is the Lord making a thorough search in which nothing is hidden from him. The punishment is just. And God has all the inside information on them, literally. Nothing is hidden from him. And yes, there were those involved in overt idolatry, as we have noted. And yes, there were those who were seduced by foreign and pagan influences, as we have noted. But here in verse 12, the great sin in view is complacency. These people are indifferent. They just don't care one way or another about the things of God. They have a very low view of God, seeing him as being completely passive. They don't deny his existence. They just don't see him as being involved in anything. You know, I kind of had a, a deist, if you will, a deist perspective. You know what deism is? Uh, deism is the belief in the existence of a supreme being, specifically of a creator, who does not intervene in the universe. The term is used chiefly of an intellectual movement, if you will, uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries that accepted the existence of a creator on the basis of reason, but at the same time, rejected belief in a supernatural deity who interacts with humankind. 
So deism says, yeah, there's a God out there, but he kind of like, you know, wound up the clock and now he's just letting it run. He doesn't really interface with it. He doesn't interact with it. In their complacency, they see the Lord is not doing anything. In their hearts, they say the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. They see God has removed. He's removed himself. Yes, he may have set things in motion. Okay, there's a, there's a God out here somewhere. But then he just kind of lets it go. He's not vitally involved. Not at this point. Someone has said, when people are indifferent to God, they tend to think that he is indifferent to them and their sin. These people have completely lost sight of God's providential activity. How does this happen? How do people get to this point? Well, depravity is always the culprit. But it happens because God does not all the time intervene in the day of the Lord judgment. You know, there's a lot of space given by God. He gives lots of space. He's giving space tonight. So much space that people can come to actually think that he's inactive. He's not doing anything. It's very, very easy to presume on the grace of God. After all, people wait, people get away with lots of sin. All the time, it would appear. Right? I mean, and there's no intervention. I mean, those hellfire and brimstone preaching by preaching for years. It doesn't happen. Right? You say, crazy nuts. Everything just continues. There's no, we don't see this. I mean, we can do what we want with Israel. I mean, we're kind of the masters and the crafters of it all. There's no, there's no God of Israel who's going to do anything about it. That's the attitude here. People just keep carrying on like they always do. And seemingly, there's no divine, in, no divine action. And so people come to think, if God exists, if he, if he does exist... He's kind of just like an old grandfatherly type who's not really doing much of anything other than sitting in his rocking chair. This, by the way, is the sign of the, a sign of the end times. Peter talks about this. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, where, where, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They don't deny creation, by the way. They just deny coming judgment. The last day scoffers challenge the idea that God is active. They don't see it. Where is his long promise coming? I mean, we've been saying he's coming for a long time. Where is he? They come to the conclusion that everything is just carrying on in the natural realm as it has from the beginning. They see God as passive and inactive. But we know, don't we? We know what God is doing. This, my friends, is the age of grace. The age of grace. What do you expect God to be doing in the age of grace? people? No. No. This is not the day of the Lord. This is the age of grace. 
And the door of grace is still open. They misunderstand God. That's a major miscalculation. This is the time when God is allowing the world to become ripe for judgment. But it's not the time for judgment yet. He is withholding judgment in the age of grace. And why is he doing that? Well, we don't have to wonder about this. Peter tells us. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Is he dragging his feet? No. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's waiting for more people to come to repentance. I mean, when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to fall hard and no one will escape. It's going to be the worst time the world has ever seen. It's coming. And the world doesn't believe it. This guy, he doesn't do anything. We don't see it. You don't understand what God's doing. You don't understand God and how he works. Here is what the world fails to see. It's not that God is inactive, but rather that he is more patient and more gracious than we could ever imagine. He does not want to bring the day of the Lord hammer down. He doesn't want to do this. And so he continues to wait for more to come to repentance. Little do they realize that God will in due time rise up and personally interject himself in the affairs of mankind in a very real and dramatic way that is called the day of the Lord. And there will be no doubt then about his activity. We read these words in the book of Revelation chapter 6. Note with me. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of its place. That has a way of getting your attention. I mean, can you imagine an earthquake? All the mountains and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the commanders and the mighty men. That's the high class. How about the low class? Every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is the day of the Lord. The Lord is still the Lord. The God of Israel is still the God of Israel. And there will be no doubt in this day. Don't mistake the day of grace where he's withholding. Oh, he will be known to be real and active in that day. This will indeed be sinners in the hands of an angry God. And his lordship will then be live and in action for all to see. All the complacent who think God will just continue to be inactive and there will be no day of the Lord judgment, they should just really look at history. Look at what happened to the Jews. The Babylonian captivity is a fact of history. No one refutes this. It happened exactly as prophesied. The Jews were taken into captivity. Everyone knows this. 
God is on record showing he brings to pass his day of the Lord judgment just exactly as he says it will. And he did this to give us a forewarning that the ultimate eschatological day of the Lord is surely going to come to pass just as sure as this Babylonian day of the Lord came to pass. We have proof in history. Verse 13, Therefore their goods shall become booty, their houses a desolation. They shall build houses and not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and not drink their wine. In the day of the Lord, judgment that God was going to bring on Judah, all would be lost. Their goods would be lost, their houses would be destroyed, their vineyards would be abandoned. They're going to lose it all. And so it happened, just exactly as God had said. Now, it didn't happen overnight. It took another 20 years or so. But it did happen. The word of the Lord always has a fulfillment. When God says judgment day is on the way, be very sure it's on the way. And by way of application, we now live in the last days of the church. We don't have to wonder about that. Paul plainly says, we are those, quote, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 11. We see flagrant apostasy all around. We see complacency everywhere. No one seems to take God very seriously except for a small remnant. And as I look at this text in Zephaniah, we note that it was written just prior to the day of the Lord event as seen in the Babylonian captivity. Even so, I believe that we find ourselves on the cusp of the coming day of the Lord judgment. And I'm thinking about verse 7, which says... What is the appropriate response? Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. In light of this reality, what should our response be? Well, I think about what Peter has to say. 1 Peter chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as of the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How should we live as God's people who live on the cusp of the coming day of the Lord's judgment? Well, we should be serious about prayer. We should be fervent in our love for one another, and we should be good stewards in ministering to one another to the glory of God. Indeed, may we be silent in the sense of being humbled down before our God, knowing that we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The great eschatological day of the Lord is getting ever closer.